You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon, we continue to hear the Word of God in the Old and New Testaments. Our text again this afternoon is from the Song of Songs, this time from chapter 7, the verses 1 through 9. In relation to this passage, we'll first read from Numbers chapter 13 and then from John chapter 1. We turn first to Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zachar. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Giuel, son of Meki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Libohamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahaman Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. 
We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now we turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, and read the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So our text this afternoon is the Song of Songs, chapter 7. Verses 1 through 9. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. 
How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breasts like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. This is the word of God, and we give thanks to him. Beloved brothers and sisters, there's something that we all love about going places. We look forward to going somewhere for a summer vacation, to a campground on the lake, a cabin far away, or another place where we spend time with relatives and friends. Many people have favorite places to go for a walk, or a bike ride, or perhaps by boat, aircraft, or automobile. Sometimes half the joy of going places is the journey there. Places are where we create memories, build friendships, recharge, live, get lost, fall in love, and so on. We love going places. We love talking about places. And we love experiencing places because they're real. They're three-dimensional. Places are part of our own human experience and existence that we can all connect with. One of the most compelling messages of the Song of Songs is the realness of life and love. This Bible book blows away the concept that, that love is just an emotion or an idea. It blows away the, the concept that, that love is merely a philosophy of life or a notion. The love that God wants to give His creatures is as real as the blood under your fingernails and the beating of your heart. The love that God wants to give you is as tangible as Harrison Hot Springs and the Sea to Sky Highway. It has GPS coordinates. In our text, Solomon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, extols the beauty and delight of human God-given love by describing love's realm loves fruit, and loves realness. Now, one of the clearest proofs of God's love for His people was the land that He gave them. Did you ever notice, in fact, as you read the Bible, that whenever God established His covenant with someone, there was always a place involved. Land. Real estate. God established His covenant of love with Adam and Eve and gave them a place, the Garden of Eden, paradise. God established His covenant with Abraham and promised to give His descendants the land of Canaan. 
He established His covenant with Moses and promised to bring the people of Israel into that place, that land, with David. And promised to establish and extend His kingdom far beyond Canaan. And you know, brothers and sisters, even the covenant of love that God has established with us through Jesus Christ comes with territory. The kingdom of God will inhabit a new heaven and a new earth. It will be a place. The kingdom of God is a place where we're all going when we believe. You see, when God makes a covenant of love with people, He gives that love coordinates. He maps it out. He gives His people their new address where they're going to live with Him as His bride. Notice in our text how Solomon, using a variety of similes and metaphors, maps out his love for his bride. The eyes of his bride make him think of the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Her nose, as strange as that may sound to modern ears, makes him think of the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. What in the world does that mean? Well, that's really a poetic way of saying that she's got her head on right and she knows how to use it. And finally, Mount Carmel's superior beauty comes to mind when he views her head. Perhaps we begin to see the picture, or better, the landscape that's emerging here. So what we have in our text is really a sort of bird's eye view of the Old Testament promised land and beyond. This view of the promised land is not only evoked by place names, but also by the various plants that are mentioned, the the wheat and lilies of the fields, the groves of palm trees, vineyards, apple orchards. The stunning view that emerges from the poem is that, that the land of Israel is a beautiful place. This is the land of Israel. Here in our text, we see a picture of the land of Israel at the peak of its productivity and expanse. Remember what must have been an absolutely head-spinning promise that God announced to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. We read about that in Deuteronomy 8. There we read, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, like we saw this morning. A land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills. Let's try to picture that. Beautiful place. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. Taste it. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. 
A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. What a land! The poet turns our eyes north to the wheat fields of the Jezreel Valley, then to the vineyards of the central hill country, and then to the date palms of the southern and eastern deserts. From the glorious heights of Lebanon and Mount Carmel, he shows us Heshbon and Damascus, both strongholds where Israel's menacing enemies once lived. We talked about Lebanon and Mount Carmel this morning, but what is the significance of Heshbon and Damascus? Well, Heshbon lay some 30 kilometers east of Jericho which was the entrance to the land of Canaan. And Heshbon was originally an Amorite city. Remember how Moses led the conquest against Sihon, king of the Amorites? Sihon, king of Heshbon, as he's called. Well, that was a significant victory of God's people during the final stage of their journey into the promised land. What about Damascus? Well, Damascus was much farther away from Jerusalem. And only the mightiest of Israel's kings were able to extend their influence and sovereignty as far as that city. If Lebanon and Mount Carmel then represent the beauty and richness, the expanse of the promised land itself, Heshbon and Damascus testify to the extension of Solomon's kingdom beyond Canaan to the farthest reaches of the world. Remember how the city of Damascus continued to play a role in the time of Christ and the apostles. Remember? That's where Saul was headed to persecute the saints. When Jesus appeared to him suddenly and brought about his conversion, it was in Damascus that Paul was commissioned and began preaching the gospel. And from there, the gospel spread into the world. Damascus, in other words, continued to represent the victory of the kingdom of God as it headed out into all the world. Now, you may be asking by now, what do all these geographical details and place names actually have to do with love? The central theme of the Song of Songs. We've already noted that when God establishes His covenant with people, He also provides an address. He tells Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan. And He tells us, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Get out your GPS. God doesn't just spend time in places with His people though. He goes places with His people. He journeys with His people. He goes for walks with His people. He went for walks with Adam and Eve in paradise. 
the Bible tells us. He delivered Israel from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He spent time with them in the desert. And then brought them across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. God on the move with His people. God walking, journeying with His people. He even went with them into exile in Babylon and Assyria and then brought them back home again. And this is something that Solomon recognizes about human relationships as well. Think about that. Two human beings who love each other occupy geographical space. It's like you and I are right now. The man lives in one place and the woman lives in some other place. But when they get married, they come together to live, to live in the same geographical space. And they also go places together. They go on a honeymoon. Great way to start a marriage. They experience places together. Places that become reference points in their relationship which describe and, and galvanize their love for one another. They become one. And so they, are, they also occupy a place together. They live together. This is something that God has shown most clearly in His Son, Jesus Christ. What did God do with His Son? God sent His Son to the earth. God sent His Son on the journey to earth to be with us in this place called earth. And when He was on earth, Jesus went places with people. And Jesus visited places to be with people. Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized. He went to Cana to celebrate a wedding. He went to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. He went anywhere to preach and do miracles and take children in His arms and on His lap. And finally, He went to that place called Jerusalem. Palm branches strewn before Him on His way to the shouts of the children. And then He went to that place on Mount Calvary, the cross, to secure our salvation. And after that, to heaven, where He's preparing a place for us. And His promise is that we will be with Him where He is. God and His people will live together in the same place. You see, that's how real God's love is for us. He's bringing us to a place. 
He's going to let down the new Jerusalem from heaven. He's going to bring it down to the earth, the Bible tells us. And He's going to bring us into that new Jerusalem and He's going to live with us there. It's a place where we'll be. And when we get there, brothers and sisters, we won't just float around in some ethereal fog. No, we'll be there in our bodies. These bodies. God's love for us, you see, is as real as this place. And as surely as we know His love here and now, we will enjoy it and experience it forever in a place as real as this one, but infinitely more beautiful and perfect and ideal in every way. You know what? You know what else? He's given us touchable, touchable, and tasteable proof here and now. He's given us proof that we can taste and touch. He provides that, that proof in the sacraments of holy baptism and the holy supper to which you're presently devoting your attention in the catechism. In the sacraments, you see, God lets us taste and see and feel that He loves us in Christ. In baptism. The waters of the flood and the Red Sea and the Jordan River by which God saved His people in the past merge with the waters of Christian baptism. And by bringing us through this baptismal water, God leads us onward to His kingdom. And thus, in baptism, God reminds us where we've been. What land He saved us from, the dominion of Satan. And He reminds us in baptism where we're going. The kingdom of heaven. You see, the dew of heaven itself is on your brow as surely as you've been baptized and believe. In the Lord's Supper, in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, He gives us a foretaste of the kingdom that He's promised. He lets us taste it. The kingdom of heaven that He's promised to us, you see, is as real as the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. The bread and wine are the imported food and drink. Imported from the kingdom of God so that we can get a, a feel for how real, how good God's kingdom is. We have a marvelous illustration of that in our Old Testament reading this afternoon. Numbers 13. 
Remember what Moses had those twelve men do whom he sent to explore the land of Canaan. He gave them very clear instructions. Bring back, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And that's exactly what they did. When these twelve men came back, they had proof. Touchable, tasteable proof of the goodness of that land. Remember how they announced upon their return, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Yeah, you can taste it. And then they said, here is the fruit. The Israelites could literally pluck the fruit of the promised land that these spies had imported. They could taste the promised land for themselves. Now you see, that's exactly what the Lord lets us do at the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper... The Lord Jesus lets us pluck the fruit of God's kingdom and He lets us taste for ourselves what we may enjoy to the full in the future. In the Lord's Supper, Christ says to us, as surely as you drink this wine with me now, so surely will you drink it with me in my Father's kingdom. Through Solomon, you see, the Holy Spirit is encouraging us to rejoice in all the creation gifts of God. And in the materiality, the tangibility, the, the touchability, the realness of all these gifts. Gifts that we can, we can taste and smell. Solomon wants to revel with his bride in these gifts. As is clear from our text. As we read our texts, it's like we're standing beside the same mound of wheat that Solomon is picking up a handful ourselves and letting it tickle our hands and fall through our fingers. We can smile with wonder with Solomon as he, as he points out the lilies around the pile of wheat. And we can laugh with him as we watch the two fawns running playfully in the meadow. With Solomon, we see our reflection as we look down into the mirror-like pools of Heshbon, the gates of the city towering above. We stand with Solomon at the foot of the palm trees contemplating the climb up to reach its fruit. Our text, you see, God's inspired and holy Word gives us permission to revel in all the gifts of creation, including human love. It recommends to us that we do so. 
So the Christian husband, like Solomon here, rejoices in the beauty of his wife in detail. God is filled with delight when you do that, husbands. The right time and place. When you admire all the beautiful features of your wife, her stature, her poise, in her hearing, for her pleasure, and in praise of the God who made her. And when you do that, husbands, you will not only delight your beloved bride, you will delight your God who made her. What a man may say to and about his wife, of course, he may not say to and about another man's wife. A courting couple may not revel in and enjoy each other's bodies the way a husband and wife may within the context of holy marriage. Like the Holy Spirit points out at other points in this poem, love must be aroused and awakened in the proper time and place. And sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage alone and for the married couple, man and woman, alone. But the Holy Spirit also gives courting couples a glimpse of what they may enjoy once they enter the garden of holy marriage. Now again, Our text isn't just for those who are married or planning to get married. This has implications for every single one of us. The Lord our God is the Creator of all things. The Bible tells us that God richly provides us with everything. Why? For our enjoyment. That's what the Bible says. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And we need to believe that. The Lord our God wants us to go ahead and enjoy all the beautiful things and places, tastes and sensations He's made. Every good thing in His creation is a reminder in some way of His real, tangible, touchable, tasteable love and presence and power and glory. The warm sand between your toes. The salty ocean water that splashes up into your face. If you've never had that experience, I recommend it. The warm sunshine that wraps its healing arms around you. Enjoy all these things. Embrace and enjoy these real things as gifts from His hands and testimonies of His love and power. The gerbil or puppy that scampers at your feet and into your lap. Some people enjoy that. The rose bush that casts its fragrance about your yard in the spring. The juicy steak and the fresh strawberries you sink your teeth into. The cedar tree that sways high above you. May these all be so many fingers pointing you to the God who loves you. 
May the water of baptism that once splashed your brow remind you that the watery membrane of the heavens will also make way for you when Jesus returns on the clouds. May the smell and the taste and the feel of the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper exported from heaven's banquet hall itself fill you with a hunger and thirst for the abundant joy promised to you in Christ. Brothers and sisters, take it all in. Revel in it. Delight in it. And in your God who loves you. And delight in those whom God has given you to love. And check your coordinates often. Say with David, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Expect your Savior who is coming to you again from heaven where your citizenship is and where where you will see your reflection in the sea of crystal before God's throne where you will drink the new wine of the kingdom with Jesus where you will bathe in the light of God Himself who will be your light. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.